Ice Coffee episode 56. Today I'm recording at Paradise Harbour and I'm well pleased to be here. I feel like I'm hitting my straps in my contracted role. I'm confident I can handle the majority of emergencies that might fall my way and after a tenfold increase in my personal leopard seal encounters, I think I know how to act so as to keep them from thinking my zodiac pontoons are worth an investigatory chomp. I'll presage my launching into the voyage of the endurance under Sir Ernest Shackleton by stating that it's likely anyone drawn to my podcast by their fascination for Shackleton will find my take on him pretty harsh. I don't apologise for that. I'm not good at ignoring flaws, and someone recently commented that I don't have friends so much as a small coterie of people who haven't pissed me off yet. But that's not true. Those people have pissed me off too, just not in so belligerently stupid a way that I wrote them out of my life. I have read about and watched documentaries and dramatisations of the Weddell Sea contingent of the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition since I was very young, and it's impossible to know the salient points of that story without holding considerable respect for the central character, Sir Ernest Shackleton. But respect isn't the same as rose-coloured glasses, and I can't tell this story honestly without accounting his mistakes and personal shortfalls that contributed to it. Would I fare any better in the same circumstances? Probably not. But that's not pertinent, because I'm recounting this story because I know it, not because I feel I have some sort of standing based on my skills or temperament. You don't need to be able to exceed a person in order to criticise them any more than you need to exceed them in order to praise them. And I have plenty of praise for Shackleton too. Episode 56 continued in Sierra Cove, sitting just off the ship in my Zodiac, a couple of humpbacks kicking around. Where was I up to? With the pole reached in 1912, Secretary to the Royal Geographical Society, Hugh Robert Mill, fervently hoped that further Antarctic forays would comprise scientific enterprises, led by such men as his friend William Spears Bruce. Mill's reservations about further glory-seeking in the South didn't dent Shackleton's drive to garner enthusiasm for the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition with the wider British public, but spoke to the general sentiment among his contemporaries among the Royal Geographical Society. The RGS pledged £1,000 to the project, stumping up the first £500 only after Shackleton provided a letter stating that the other half of the money would never be requested. I don't understand how that's supposed to work. Perhaps businesses and societies still work on this apparently most British of financial promises, but Shackleton, in need of the £500, sent the requested letter promising not to ask for the rest of the money promised him. I just got a humpback coming up on me here, I'm just getting my phone ready in case I find myself in a good position for a photograph. certainly think we'll be hearing from it in a couple of minutes. Sir Clements Markham, already noted as having denounced the ITAE as naked self-serving ego massage, also loudly considered Sir Ernest ten years too old to undertake the work that Markham considered the sole preserve of his beloved Royal Navy lieutenants. Bruce, whose mention of the Traverse first set Filchner and then Shackleton after that tantalising first, grudgingly acknowledged that such a journey could yield valuable information about the nature of the continent, but didn't approve the tack Shackleton took with the idea 
making it more a stunt than a study. That said, with Filchner's failure to get ashore, Shackleton's foray would comprise the first trek through the hinterland of the Waddell Sea and might uncover something interesting, like a lost valley full of dinosaurs where everyone would otherwise expect more of the same glaciers leading up to the Polar Plateau. Shackleton played to the scientific intent by proposing that the Traverse Party should incorporate magnetic, glaciological and geological measurements and collections, while additional sledging parties headed west and east, across the Filchner Ice Shelf from Varsel Bay, to examine whether mountains parallel to those in Victoria Land occurred toward the Graham Land side of the continent's western aspect, and to similarly characterise the region towards Enderby Land, while the Winter Quarters home fire stokers kept up meteorological observations and quantified the local biology. Shackleton referred to the expedition as the greatest polar journey ever attempted, because he was good at marketing. But the bulk of the hype referred to the 1800 nautical mile traverse as the scientific elements were, by that point in Antarctic history, the bare minimum any expedition seeking scientific credibility in the eyes of bodies such as the Royal Society needed to account. Other contenders kept Shackleton's feet to the fire, with the Austrian Felix Koenig proposing his return to the Antarctic aboard the Deutschland, and vague Scott affiliate J. Foster Stackhouse seeking funds to venture to King Edward VII land. Neither proposed crossing the continent, but neither posed any other threat to the ITAE glory, as neither project got moving. Koenig ended up heading north, and Stackhouse never got his shit together, and then died in the sinking of the Lusitania, a seminal event in getting the USA involved in the First World War. With the exception of Frank Hurley, whose footage from Cape Denison made his selection a fait accompli to those expedition backers looking to take a share of the picture and movie returns in return for opening their checkbooks, Shackleton attended to all personnel selections personally, his experience of life at sea and through two winters in McMurdo Sound informing his choices toward people likely to make life in isolation easy on their companions and perhaps actually enjoyable. Optimism seemed a much-sought quality that Shackleton prized as much as seamanship or scientific pedigree. When Shackleton interviewed the physicist, Reginald James, he famously expressed more interest in the candidate's ability to sing than in his actual credentials. When Worsley showed up, Shackleton and Wilde expressed almost as much interest in whether or not he liked dogs as they did in his maritime bona fides. George Marston, the artist Shackleton took with him aboard the Nimrod was quick to sign on for further polar service, documenting Antarctica in oils. Tom Crean, by this point one of the most experienced Antarcticans in the world, signed on as second officer almost as soon as he returned to England from the British Antarctic Expedition Mark III. Alf Cheatham, another member of the BAE Mark III, and also a veteran of the morning supply visits to McMurdo Sound in support of the discovery during Scott's first expedition, came on as third officer. New Zealander, Frank Worsley, gained his master's certificates working aboard wool clippers and then aboard the Hinamoa in the New Zealand government steamer service. His first command, the Countess of Ranfurly, was sold out from under him and he joined the Royal Navy Reserve to continue his training studying torpedoes, gunnery and advanced navigation before returning to the merchant service, though the Royal Navy Reserve would call on his skills and experience regularly through much of his professional life. While awaiting a new berth in London, Worsley dreamt he was navigating a ship round icebergs that floated down Burlington Street. 
acting on this premonition, he headed to Burlington Street the following day and there noticed the notice affixed to Shackleton's ITAE headquarters. After just a few minutes conversing with Shackleton, Worsley was offered and accepted captaincy of the Endurance. Good thing he liked dogs, or there'd be no hook for our hindsight bias. Royal Navy ship's mate, Hubert Hudson, signed on as navigator, the expedition promising experiences and opportunities that would count toward gaining his master's certificate. Reginald James Cambridge colleague, Scotsman James Wordy, a student of Professor John Walter Gregory, Scott's scientific competitor for leadership of the Discovery Expedition, whose Arctic experience indicated small parties using dogs to explore the Ross Sea region, but whose ambitions in that quadrant were stymied by the small-minded interference of Sir Clements Markham, applied for the expedition against the advice of Lady Kathleen Scott, who implored potential candidates to shun Shackleton during a college dinner held in the memory of her husband. Cambridge provided the academic backdrop against which Raymond Priestley, Griffith Taylor, Frank Debenham and Charles Wright wrote up their British Antarctic Expedition reports and papers, and for the establishment of the Scott Polar Institute. And anti-Shackleton sentiment there wasn't strong enough to overwhelm pro-Antarctic expedition sentiment, in spite of Lady Scott's best efforts to poison the ITAE well. Griffith Taylor's confident assertion that the ITAE constituted the last great polar expedition anyone would ever undertake added a soupçon of urgency among the Cambridge denizens angling for involvement. Wordy developed a rapport with all four of the Cambridge Antarctic veterans, Priestley in particular. Shackleton wanted Priestley on the ITAE, but Priestley was enjoying growing momentum in a career that saw him become Vice-Chancellor at two prestigious universities and wasn't able to take a couple of years off from his work the way he had done in the past. Shackleton instead took Wordy on his former Nimrod companion's advice. Another Scot, Robert Clark, signed on as expedition biologist. Leonard Hussey studied psychology, meteorology and anthropology at London College. He joined the ITAE as meteorologist after working as an archaeologist in the Sudan as part of Henry Welcome's extensive excavations at Jebel Moya. Shackleton lined up an interview with Hussey solely on the basis of his being tickled at receiving an application to head to the heart of Antarctica from the heart of Africa. But his skill with his five-string banjo and the fact that he looked funny helped land Hussey his berth. While it might be that British shipwrights and carpenters are self-selectingly pessimistic as a whole, I think Shackleton's instinct to select for optimism failed him in picking Harry Chippy McNeish. Undoubtedly a genius with wood and the tools used for working it, McNeish was a Cassandra among Pollyannas. He shipped with a cat, Mrs Chippy, who was male and not actually married to McNeish, marriage equality and the repercussions foreseen by luminaries such as Lyle Shelton may not contain actual repercussions or illumination, Lay a century in the future. Digression. Fuck Lyle Shelton and his small-minded bigotry. Royal Marines physical training instructor and veteran of the Boxer Rebellion, Thomas Ord Lees, after hearing a lecture by Fritjof Nansen about his attempt on the North Pole, decided to chance his hand in polar exploration. He narrowly missed a berth aboard the Terra Nova under Scott, the role of ski instructor going to Trigve Grorn. But Ord Lees didn't let this sour his ambition to get south. On the announcement of the ITAE, he contacted Shackleton, who went with him to discuss getting Ord Lees transferred out of the Marines with Winston Churchill, who'd gained a seat in Parliament on the Liberal ticket in the same 1905 election in which Shackleton's gambit in the Conservative Party failed, and who was, at this time, the first Sea Lord. Matthew Mollis. Go ahead, Mollis. Driving up 
Copy that, thank you. Churchill approved the transfer, but little else Shackleton ever said or did. But we're talking Winston Churchill here, and that's true of most of the rest of humanity extant at the time too. Audley's joined the expedition as the only capable skier, but spent far more time and energy in the role of quartermaster than in any form of physical instruction. He also brought some experience in internal combustion engines. Travelling to Norway with Shackleton to oversee tests of the new sledging tractors, described in episode 53, and to assess the new hoop tunnel tents designed by Marston. Fussiness of habit made Ord Lees an ideal fit for the Q-Store, but fussiness of temperament, coupled with a social class awareness radar with the gain turned way up high, made him appear priggish to other crew members, making him the butt of many jibes and practical jokes. The expedition's medical expertise came aboard as Scotsman Alexander Macklin and Northern Irishman James McElroy. McElroy studied medicine in Birmingham and practiced it in Africa and Asia and as a ship's doctor. Macklin spent his youth boating about the Scilly Isles and picking up his taste for the physician's life in the wings of his father's far northern practice. He studied at the University of London, keeping his hand in in maritime circles working as a deckhand, completing his studies at Victoria University in Manchester and applying to join the expedition shortly after graduating. Two engineers, Louis Rickinson and Alfred Kerr, complemented one another with their specialisations in steam and internal combustion engines respectively. Able seaman Walter Howe held ice sailing experience from working aboard Canadian survey vessels in the Arctic, but was also selected for his artistic skills. While Marston was the official expedition artist, Howe made sketches that were later used for paintings published in some accounts of the voyage. Able seaman Timothy McCarthy, whose brother Mortimer served under Scott aboard the Terra Nova, was the youngest member of the crew to join in Britain. Thomas MacLeod, who served aboard the Terra Nova with McCarthy's brother Mortimer, joined as one of the oldest expedition members, having served 27 years at sea when the expedition kicked off. Hull-based North Sea trawlerman John Vincent signed on as bosun. In addition to working in one of the hardest and most dangerous industries humanity has yet devised, Vincent was a boxer and a wrestler and constituted the strongest man among the crew, comprising some fairly hard-cased tough nuts. Fellow hull-based North Sea trawlermen, William Stevenson and Ernest Holness, completed the ship's complement, signing on as the ship's first and second stokers, respectively. King George V, with little else to contemplate at the time but the storm clouds gathering in the form of tensions presaging war, found some enthusiasm for the distracting novelty of another Antarctic expedition. He poured over the plan with Shackleton and provided a fresh Union Jack to fly at the Pole when claiming the entire Polar Plateau for the Empire. That same day, the First World War kicked off, though no one would know it by that name for at least three years. With the signal for general mobilisation coming while the ship transited to Plymouth, Shackleton told his men he intended wiring the British Admiralty to immediately turn over the Endurance and the Aurora to the war effort. Winston Churchill felt the Navy held no place for a man of Shackleton's mean. The first response came as a terse telegram, proceed, with a more detailed missive following from Churchill stating that the expedition should go ahead, which it did, leaving Plymouth on the 8th of August. Lionel Greenstreet joined the expedition as first officer at the last minute, his predecessor in the role opting for war service. He was interviewed by Worsley in Plymouth, told the first officer slot was his, and given 24 hours to settle his affairs and get aboard. After a hectic day tying up as many loose ends as he could, 
Greenstreet joined the Endurance just half an hour before she cast off lines. Shackleton. Wary anyone should try to paint his proceeding as desertion in the face of imperial duty, wrote of the departure from Plymouth on the 8th of August as setting out on a most dangerous, difficult and strenuous work. Clark began dangerous, difficult and strenuous work with the sampling nets and dredges immediately, and worked his groove diligently until the endurance met its end. A dour man, Clark earned respect from all for his intense work ethic and for putting his hand up for any task requiring hard yards, from scientific measurements to trimming coal. In Madeira, a nominally neutral port, Seaman Irving was cut with a sword and Seaman Barr received a terracotta planting pot to the face in an altercation. Though I'm left uncertain as to whether this was due to tensions caused by the war, or would have happened when these particular sailors headed out on the piss together regardless. Four expedition members ended up in the local jail overnight for a brawl that wrecked a local cafe. Captain Worsley overlooked his own men's boisterous behaviour, but became bolshy when a German ship swung at its anchor, striking and damaging the endurance. Worsley and several seamen boarded the offending vessel and held its captain to book until its crew effected repairs on the Endurance. The Endurance sailed on to Buenos Aires via Montevideo, the wood slated for the magnetician's hut going through the engine firebox en route due to a shortage of coal. Shackleton arrived in Buenos Aires by steamer after the customary frantic last-minute fundraising efforts. Shackleton's merchant maritime leadership style contrasts starkly with the naval standards and mores enforced by Scott or Campbell, Shackleton requiring the officers and scientists to work the rigging and attend to cleaning duties with the other ranks. Sir Ernest set a firmer disciplinary mean aboard the Endurance than Worsley, though, the tales of largesse during the transit giving him and some of the scientists some misgivings about Worsley's capacity as a leader. Irving and Barr, stars of the Madeira brawling, were written out of the ITAE history at that point for failing to meet the boss's standards for companionable coexistence with shipmates. Charles Green, Merchant Navy ship's cook, left the Royal Mail Line ship to work in the Endurance's galley, vacated on these departures. Frank Hurley also joined the expedition at that point with his large cache of camera equipment and film stock, immediately commencing what would become one of the most celebrated pictorial histories of any project in any era. Featuring strikingly unusual compositions arising from strikingly unusual circumstances, Hurley's work stands apart from all other photographic portfolios. Certainly few catalogues arriving from a single artist can hold a candle to what Hurley captured during his time under Shackleton, even after his catalogue required extensive culling due to events in the Waddell Sea. As was the case with many an early adopter in the photographic arts, Hurley was a tinkerer and could turn his hand to the basics of many trades. What time he didn't dedicate to his art, he often spent in fabricating useful equipment or repairing and improving existing gear, and his time in the Sydney Post Office gave him enough experience of electricity to enable him to keep the Endurance's small generator operational. Useful and affable as he was, Shackleton's relationship with Hurley was complicated. Hurley's appointment as expedition photographer lay outside Shackleton's hands, and the charismatic and strong-willed Australian sometimes irked the expedition leader by making decisions or expressing opinions that undermined his own. Shackleton's method of negating this problem was to keep Hurley close and to consult him on expedition matters other than the safe and effective running of the ship. This seems to have worked well as Hurley, 
Flattered by the attentive manner in which Sir Ernest sought and considered his insights, posed less risk of upsetting Shackleton's apple cart than he might have done had his ego not received such massaging and had he not been kept close enough to have an eye kept on him. James Wordy, independently wealthy through an inheritance from the family carting fortune, fronted Shackleton enough money to bunker coal, the fundraising efforts that delayed Shackleton in England not having produced as much as desired. Business as usual for Antarctic expeditions. What news of Europe preceded the Endurance's arrival continued to prophesy the six-month limit for the war, given increasing Russian involvement, which is longer than the it'll all be over by Christmas scuttlebutt prominent in Britain when the war started, but still far shorter than the reality turned out. Part 3, Mickelson Harbour. 69 Norwegian sled dogs joined the expedition in Buenos Aires. A mix of Greenland husky and anything big and canine, the dogs formed the basis of the key transport bet, Shackleton having learnt the folly of ponies the hard way. The Canadian dog driver Shackleton signed on never joined the ship, as Shackleton refused to pay for an insurance policy the man stipulated as part of his remuneration, leaving the expedition without an experienced dog sledger. Sir Daniel Gooch, heir to the fortune of his grandfather, also Sir Daniel Gooch, an engineer with the Great Western Railway who designed many of its steam engines, sailed with the ship as far as South Georgia to look after the dogs and to teach the men as much about their upkeep as could be achieved on a ship where most of what a dog gets up to in normal circumstances was impossible. A last minute signing, Sir Daniel came aboard for his experience breeding racing greyhounds and in hunting foxes with beagles. Not exactly a one-to-one -one match for working with huskies, but without a dedicated dog handler of any kind, he was better than nothing, and his cheerful disposition made him popular among the crew. In Buenos Aires, two men left marooned in Argentina when their ship, the Golden Gate, went aground in the River Plate, and looking for berths that would eventually take them back to England, William Bakewell and Purse Blackborough put their hands up to join the ship. Shackleton took on the 27-year-old Bakewell, who called himself a Canadian in case Shackleton held a prejudice against Americans, but deemed the 18-year-old Blackborough too young. Concerned that the ship was sailing short-handed, Walter Howe helped Bakewell sneak his friend aboard. Three days out from Buenos Aires, the stowaway came to light. Shackleton gathered the whole crew for the shouty dressing down that he gave Blackborough, and Howe and Bakewell gave themselves away as the guilty conspirators by their reactions to the venomous tirade. Shackleton finished by telling the young man that polar expeditions often run short of food and that stowaways are the first to go in the pot in such situations. The scrawny Welshman endeared himself to Shackleton and to smart mouths everywhere by responding to the heavily built leader, they'd get more meat off you sir. Shackleton's reporter just trying to stifle a grin before ordering the young man be introduced to the cook. Blackborough worked hard and earned his signing on as steward at three pounds a month during the 11-day voyage to Gritviken. Also earning much respect and affection during the transit, Mrs Chippy regularly made a shortcut across the kennel roofs, infuriating the chained dogs below. One of the dogs, Splitlip, provided additional entertainment during the transit, slipping their chain near the helm and leading Wild on a merry chase down a companionway to the engine room, through the bunkers and thereafter leaving an easily followed trail of coal black paw prints through the galley where the furry opportunist stole the string of sausages and on into the forecastle and recapture among the men. 
Station manager Fritjof Jakobsen made the expedition welcome in Grytviken, and the South Georgia whalers supplied news about the ice conditions in the Weddell Sea. The news was not good, the worst sea ice conditions for many years being the considered consensus. Shackleton extended the stay on South Georgia to a month to enter the pack ice later in the summer. The dog drivers took their charges ashore to begin learning from first principles what the absent Canadian dog driver should have been teaching, the men struggling to restrain the dogs from the ample whale offal lining the bay shores. Thomas Ord Lees headed into the mountains to sate his climbers' imperative, making first ascents of unnamed peaks against Shackleton's explicit orders to avoid taking unnecessary risks. After taking a walk into the hill surrounding Gritviken with the boss, Wordy noted that his leader was noticeably worn out by their exertions and plagued by a persistent cough. As much as I'm loath to agree with Sir Clements Markham about anything, Shackleton may not have been in the best physical state to take on Antarctica. But with the war at his back and financial concerns assigned to the I'll deal with that later or not at all if I die basket, cancelling or postponing the ITAE was not an option. As was the case with Scott and the BAE Mark III, Shackleton's capacity to consider all available options was constrained by the circumstances accumulating in the form of past disappointments, personal expectations and publicly perceived responsibilities. Sir Daniel Gooch left the Endurance at South Georgia, sailing back to Britain to oversee the conversion of his home, Highlands House, into a hospital for war wounded. The Endurance bunkered more coal on credit and departed South Georgia on the 5th of December, the first Antarctic expedition ship to carry its maritime insurance beyond its last port of call, Lloyd's deeming the endurance sufficiently ice-worthy and the 1914 understanding of ice conditions and movement sufficiently finessed to let the £15,000 policy carry south with the ITAE, which met the outlying pack ice two days later. The ship entered the ice field in the eastern region of the Weddell Sea, anticipating that the clockwise circulation would bring them to Varsel Bay even if the ship became caught in the ice. Worsley guided his ship between the flows as best he could, sometimes using the strengthened bow and the steam engine to create new or to enlarge existing leads. Hurley wrote of the method, When the ship comes in impact with the ice, she stops dead, shivering from truck to keelson. Then almost immediately, a long crack starts from our bows, into which we steam and, like a wedge, slowly force the crack sufficiently to enable passage to be made. But this approach, costing large volumes of coal and placing the rudder and propeller in danger of the ice drawn in behind the ship, could only get them so far. The endurance became increasingly slow to make progress the further they pushed into the pack, and the icebergs became an increasingly frequent sight. Recording part four of this episode in Wilhelmina Bay. Flattest conditions I've ever seen. There's a bit of ice cracking off some of the glaciers and there are some humpbacks kicking around. There's one now. They passed the Antarctic Circle on New Year's Eve and the Scots and some other lovers of all things fermented pissed off everyone else with their raucous pissing it up and off-key rendition of Auld Lang Syne at midnight the respectable members of the crew having retired at a more gentlemanly hour. On the 5th of January, unable to make headway, the crew played soccer on the sea ice. Biologist Clark distinguished himself as one of the better players among the crew, impressing onlookers with his prowess. 
Captain Worsley went through a thin patch of ice to receive the first drubbing of the expedition. On the 6th, Shackleton ordered the dogs lowered onto the sea ice for some sledge training, their first exercise in the month since departing South Georgia. Eager for a cardio workout, the dogs preferred to get their exercise in the form of vicious fighting, several of them going through rotten ice, their attempts to assert dominance coming to an abrupt and soggy end. Clark took advantage of the slow progress to deploy biological sampling equipment regularly through holes in the sea ice. The crew often witnessed killer whales pushing through the sea ice to try to dislodge hauled out seals. Frank Hurley found an especial loathing for the predators when a pod chased him across the ice, pushing through the thin patches his dog sledge team just passed over. The dogs didn't need encouragement in heading for a more solid footing, and the photographer felt certain it was only the unusual aspect he and his dogs presented to the orca that prevented them pressing home their attack. Given Herbert Ponting's similar experience with the species, it could be that they consider expedition photographers a delicacy. The Endurance backtracked on the 7th to find a better path through the ice, and on the 8th came inside of Coatsland, that coast William Spears Bruce named after his benefactors. The sighting indicated the Endurance only lay about a week of such slow progress away from Varsel Bay and their proposed continental landing. The shore party began writing their final letters home and marshalling what equipment they could readily access. On the 11th, one of the dogs gave birth to a litter of puppies. Tom Crean's attentive fussing over the newborns giving rise to the famous photograph of him with four of the youngsters on his lap. This picture competes with that of Purse Blackborough, with Mrs Chippy perched on his shoulder, for the best photograph of all time, in my book. On the 12th, the Endurance came into open water, simultaneously surpassing the Scotia's 1903 furthest south. On the 13th, after searching for an entry into a blind wall of sea ice, the Endurance banked its fires and lay to. Unable to force their path, the ITAE waited for the weather to work a change in the local conditions. On the 15th, the ship made some way under sail along the newly named Caird Coast, and Shackleton noticed and named an inlet, Glacier Bay, noting it would make an excellent landing site and could easily winter a ship if necessary. Worsley pushed that they should make their landing while they could, arguing that an established winter quarters in Glacier Bay was better than a possible winter quarters in Varsel Bay, but the 200 nautical mile difference in latitude was the clincher for Shackleton. He didn't want the Traverse Party to have to haul any further than they needed to, and a 200 mile head start might mean survival and success, when the only possible alternative was failure and death. After a fair run of 124 nautical miles, the weather came away from the east, working up to a gale. The ship lay to in the lee of a large iceberg as the pack ice broke out to the west, promising good leads if the wind eased, but the gale held steady, forcing an unwelcome decision to raise steam in order to steam the ship around in small circles while remaining to leeward of the berg, burning coal and going nowhere. The gale eased on the 18th sufficient that the Endurance raised sail and enjoyed a clear run of 24 miles before loose pack and brash brought it to another halt. Despite having burnt through more than half the ship's 160 tonnes of coal, Shackleton ordered the fires kept up so as to quickly take advantage of any opening in the increasingly densely packed ice. On the 24th, a lead did present itself, but fell 100 yards short of reaching the ship. Saws, pickaxes and crowbars came to the fore, but the attempts to encourage the ice to open up, even with the ship ramming it at what speed it could get up in the straightened straits, didn't join the Endurance's tiny pool with the distant and still developing crack. Despite fine weather, the pack closed in. The leads and the channels cut to try to reach them froze over, 
and the Endurance didn't move under her own power ever again. The air temperature dropped. Frank Hurley wrote that they appeared stuck fast as early as the 27th of January, a realisation mirrored in many other diaries, though not discussed openly until a month later. Shackleton ordered winter clothing, earmarked for the shore party, be distributed to all hands, kicking off with the seamen, noting that the officers, if anyone, would cop any shortfall. To some of the sailors, these articles were the best-made clothing they ever wore. Deeming the articles too good to waste on work duties, some placed their new belongings in their sea chests, hoping to get a fine swagger in the swanky garb on returning home. Having overseen the purchase of the equipment, Shackleton must have known that enough lay in hand for everyone to receive two full kits and that no one would need to go without Burberry or Woolens, but I think it's by such deliberate and visible demonstrations of his concern for their welfare that the boss earned and retained the high regard of the other ranks. Such regard for men of lesser standing rankled Ord Lees, whose class consciousness seemed as meticulously calculated as his assessment of stores and rates of use. His snobbishness towards others might not have earned him the disdain that it earned if it weren't coupled to a sense of pessimism that led him to squirrel away goods for his personal use, and his tendency to disappear when the call went out for bent backs. He would happily ride his bicycle out over the sea ice for spans long enough that Shackleton once began preparations for a search party, but actual work seemed to make him itchy to be elsewhere. Clark continued his sampling series through the sea ice, and Hurley captured on film and glass plate negatives the various aspects of the Weddell Sea experience for posterity, but little other productive work took place. Lots of fretting, letter writing, make do and mend. Leeds occasionally opened up, offering some hope, but closed again, keeping that hope brief. The sea ice was on the move though, even if the endurance wasn't. Winds, currents, coasts, and the Coriolis deflection give the Weddell Sea a well-known, but at the time poorly understood, clockwise circulation, and this shifted the expedition to its furthest south, 77 degrees south, by February the 22nd. On the 24th of February, as the circulation pulled the ice and the stranded ship it surrounded away from the proposed landing site, less than a day of good steaming away, Shackleton ordered an end to all efforts to loose the ice and a hiatus to the ship's routine, turning the endurance into winter quarters. Relieved ice sawyers downed their tools and the officers and seamen took up the less rigorous schedule of a shore station staff. A single night watchman, though often a contingent of the unlucky punter's confederates stayed up late to keep them company, these night watch hangers-on being referred to as ghosts, looked over the observations and stoves between 8 at night and 8 in the morning, giving a full 12 hours of sleep or recreation for everyone else. Sailors that would normally be kept busy with their shipboard duties and the shore party, who expected to spend their winter months preparing their equipment and training up through short sledge journeys, kept busy during the working day with the upkeep of the dogs, hunting of seals, and establishing and operating of the scientific instruments. Leonard Hussey didn't seem to get the hang of Antarctic weather, and his meteorological predictions were more in the line of inverse prophecies, Ord Lees writing that, just when he thinks it is going to be one thing, the precise opposite happens. I know a few meteorologists and know of the chip they justifiably bear on their shoulders because hindsight bias makes the public deride them for those occasions where an incorrect forecast results in a soggy picnic or unexpected sweltering during a day at the races. While they continue to knock other scientific endeavours into the embarrassment hat with the overall accuracy of their predictions. So I'm not sure if Audley's jibe is accurate or another example of people missing the hits because they're obsessed with the misses. Uncertainty over his merit as a meteorologist aside, 
Hussey's contributions to the morale of the expedition received mention in many diaries. Frank Worsley noted him as a brilliant wit, and people sometimes goaded him into verbal jousts, simply for the pleasure of hearing the retorts, which invariably saw him win each bout. Hussey's optimism may have been a result of deliberate effort, but his cheerful countenance and upbeat observations served the crew well in all their travels and travails. In hiring based on candidate optimism and entertainment value, Shackleton hit gold in Hussey. The wood for the magnetician's hut having been burnt as fuel for the ship's boiler, Reginald James had to make do with a snowblock shelter for his instruments, known as the fizzloo by the sailors. James was loquacious, which is a word meaning mouthy which only loquacious people tend to know, and loved sharing his ideas about and developing insights into his atmospheric studies. He worked closely with Captain Worsley in taking astronomical observations, updating the chronometers, using the precise timing of the occultation of stars, and using the chronometers to measure changes in latitude and longitude. Wordy, James's Cambridge colleague, was more laconic and less of an innocent naif in the cynical company of seafarers than his academic companion. His dry Scots humour and gentle ability to needle people without malice stood him in good stead with everyone, and he stood apart from all cliques, making him a valuable social safety valve in the expedition. His own research being curtailed by an absence of rocks to geologise, other than the sediments occasionally brought to light by Clark's efforts with the marine sampling gear, or scraped from the flanks of icebergs, or found in the crops of dissected penguins, Wordy turned his hand to glaciology, as other Antarctic geologists had done when in want of rocks or in the presence of surfeit of geologists. Shackleton, keenly alert to the dent a winter afloat put in his chances of success, didn't outwardly express his disappointment about the situation. While the spring might free the ship and still allow an attempt at crossing the continent some seven months hence, he kept the focus on calmly making ready for the coming winter, drawing on his past experiences and those of his other Antarctic veterans to prepare the ship, its crew and their animals for the dark months and blizzards ahead. Seal hunting, already providing the dogs with their food, ramped up to ensure a winter's worth of carcasses before the Waddells forewent the local sea ice for abodes nearer the annual ice margin. Chippy McNeish set to work converting the tween-deck storage area into a sleeping compartment for those officers and scientists berthed in the deckhouse accommodations, which became unbearably cold in the falling autumn temperatures. The area McNeish generated took on the name The Ritz, with each compartment taking on additional layers of taxonomy according to the habits and decorations of the occupants who took possession of their new homes toward mid-March. A central space in the Ritz became the new wardroom, with Marston, Wilde, Crean and Worsley moving into the wardroom proper. Shackleton retained his berth in what became the coldest of the occupied spaces. The dogs and pigs also took up warmer digs in dogloos and pigloos, built on the sea ice by McNeish, though Mrs Chippy stayed aboard, maintaining the lofty standards commensurate to his station as a cat sharing space in the forecastle with Mr Chippy. In early April, Shackleton assigned the 50 dogs, some 19 having already died because of intestinal worms, the infection and its impact unchecked by the lack of any worming tablets, to six sledging teams in the care of Hurley, Dr Macklin, Dr McElroy, Marston, Wilde and Crean. Green and Blackborough butchered the pigs in late April, I recently found out that Toby the Antarctic Pig, who sailed with Charcot aboard the Francais, was a gift from Lieutenant Irazar and considered something of a totem by the ship's crew, explaining why he was buried and not converted to comestibles on his death from being a greedy pig. 
The ITAE pigs weren't similarly the focus of sailor superstition and were converted into a large volume of small goods. It was in April that the Endurance first felt the pressure the sea ice could bring to bear. Wind and currents working on the Weddell Sea pushed the ice onto itself in nodes of pressure. Some areas rafting and pushing upward as pressure ice, while other areas remained unaffected. Clearly the Antarctic, ship version, became locked in an area where the pressure worked hardest against the expedition's goals, where the Deutschland remained largely unscathed. The Endurance, it seems, lay in one of the places where a change in the weather could threaten the ship with pressure, and another change in the weather could ease the stress. As the April pressure came on, the Endurance shook and groaned as the ice pressed in on her sides. Wadey described the tortured screeching and screaming noises as akin to a freight train of heavy goods wagons passing by on ungreased wheels. Where the Fram would simply climb above such molestation, the Endurance simply lay in place, everyone hoping the hull was stronger than the forces playing on it, and making it sing the dismal choruses that only tortured wood can compose. The ITAE saw the last of the sun for the autumn on the 1st of May. The dog drivers continued to exercise their teams, competing to demonstrate their skill and speed at every opportunity. The sea ice surface made sledging difficult, two sledges already being damaged in hauling seal meat to the ship, but regular training kept people busy and the dogs in good working fettle. The circulation in the Weddell Sea caused the sea ice, the ship and the nearby icebergs to move in concert, so even as Worsley's sextant shots demonstrated they were moving west and north, the local scenery didn't reveal any sign of the process. Changes in wind, on the other hand, brought about rapid shifts in the sea ice, causing rafting as plates of ice rode over or under one another, and pressure ridges where such accommodating arrangements didn't arise. Add on to this shift away from a level playing field, the effects of wind sculpted sastrugi and the sea ice worked into a very difficult to traverse surface. Perhaps busiest among the winterers, Frank Hurley kept up his photographic output, even in the dark months, using cunning painting with light techniques to generate some of the most evocative images ever made in Antarctica. In particular, his late August portraits of the Endurance, starkly beautiful but clearly out of its element, lit up against dark snow and dark sky. At first glance, the images appear as though printed in negative, the light and darkness inverted, but it's not that simple a trick. Careful timing, attention to chemistry, and running between flash stations across the frozen ground with his night vision ruined after each successive flare, went into these images. And the more I contemplate how Hurley worked through the various hurdles to their capture, the more I marvel at what he achieved. When not making his exposures, tending to his machinery or keeping the lights on by dint of his basic training as a post office electrician, Hurley worked in his darkroom, a makeshift space positioned near the boiler in an attempt to keep it at an operable temperature. Developing the exposures required large volumes of fresh water to dilute the developing fluid to the correct concentration and for rinsing exposed plates and papers, in turn requiring large volumes of ice to be melted and then prevented from returning to the solid state from which it was wrought. With the boilers run down, the darkroom required additional heating in the form of a primer stove, which in turn required regular resupply with kerosene and methylated spirits and regular replenishment of the oxygen in the small space that the primer stove used. That Hurley managed to generate any sort of image in this primitive rig is amazing. That he generated images that still stand out as masterpieces of the photographer's art a hundred years later borders on the heroic. In the dark evenings, meteorologist Hussey provided the focus for many a night's singing with his banjo 
and Hurley provided magic lantern presentations featuring his time in Antarctica under Mawson and a recent voyage to Java. Board games, word games and books filled the quiet hours and unlike the occupants of the Belgica, the well-dressed, well-fed, common-languaged endurance denizens weathered the winter with little obvious toastiness. The most boisterous expression of exasperation in the face of the forced idleness being a shaving party during which many members of the expedition sacrificed their barnet for the sake of a few laughs and a sense of solidarity. Shackleton threw in with this bonhomie, his leadership contrasting with that of the distantly naval Scott or the autocratic Amundsen. Shackleton's shaved head, tin-eared contributions to sing-alongs and attention to the well-being of the other ranks made regard for his leadership as much a matter of loyalty as it was one of maritime discipline. Discipline was still a necessary arrow in his leader's quiver though, and reports of bullying in the forecastle saw him speaking sternly with the boatswain, John Vincent. The boss's reprimand and summary demotion reportedly brought the matter to a close. Another boon to the cohesive mean of the endurance during the winter of 1915 came from Yorkshire. Frank Wilde, with five Antarctic winters already under his belt, backed Shackleton's more boisterous leadership up with a quiet, steady approach to getting what he needed done with a minimum of fuss and almost never a harsh word. Shackleton was pretty approachable by officer standards, but Wilde's time before the mast and lack of a knighthood made him an easier confidant for some among the crew, and it was Wilde who dealt with the bulk of petty complaints between expedition members, often simply listening to the complaint attentively and giving them assurance that their concerns were noted. As was the case with his brother Ernest among the Ross Sea Party, Frank Wilde stands out as a pillar of quiet competence and stoic tenacity. Ord Lee's diary reveals he felt many of the menial duties all hands took part in beneath his station, but he kept this disillusionment about life outside the Royal Marines to himself. He definitely didn't like sharing a wardroom with a man as uncouth, I'll pay that, and uneducated, I won't pay that, because shipwrights knew their stuff. Anyone who's been to sea in a wooden vessel knows that the carpenter is worth their seat at any table. A casual mentioned that he could cook, a reference to his ability to heat up rations while camping out on campaign, led to Ord Lee's being assigned to fill Green's shoes in the galley when the cook fell ill. Concerned he would either starve or poison the entire ship, his efforts proved satisfactory once his nerves were quieted by the assistance of the handy stowaway, Blackborough. Indeed, it was a cunning move by Ord Lee's that saw the crew take to eating and learning to like seal. He cooked up a load of seal steaks with a liberal helping of onions and the smell pervaded the ship. Asked by a seaman what he was working up, he replied that it was seal for the wardroom. The Bolshe merchant seaman, not wanting to be cheated their fair share of fare, asked if they too could partake of seal. Ord Lee's offered them a choice of seal or the accustomed tinned rabbit and the formerly derided local game was not only chosen, but accepted as the preferred staple. Nice work, Audley's. On the 9th of June, heavy pressure rafted 15-foot-high structures of sea ice, with sounds akin to distant artillery fusillades. The pressure continued for four days, and while the noise and the obvious power behind the rafting process put everyone's nerves on edge, its influence didn't reach the ship. On the 15th of June, all hands received a day off to attend the Dog Derby, a sledge race over a 700-yard course marked out with lanterns. With all bets laid, Shackleton waved the starter signal and the six sledge teams demonstrated their prowess, developed considerably since the dogs first went onto the ice, 
and indicative of a fair effort given the overall dearth of dog driving experience among the Britons. Wild's team won the main event. Midwinter's day also brought a holiday for all hands, the crew celebrating the birth of the new god with a relatively large and extravagant meal, followed by an evening of recitals, music and skits. For those of you who didn't spend time in the scouts or similar bodies, a skit is a short, allegedly comic live performance. I recall these as music hall without the ready access to exits. Fuck me, I'm all old and shit. As June passed into July and the midday twilight made topside tasks a little easier, Worsley's sightings indicated they'd drifted almost 700 nautical miles since the ship froze in, rarely in a straight line and often involving backtracking, but it appeared they were going to ride the gyre until the Waddell Sea spat them out. Any hope of returning south and reaching Varsel Bay appearing a distant and very optimistic one. Not exactly a cliffhanger ending for this episode, but I suspect you already know what happens. Cheers this time to Emily and Atticus. We've yet to meet, but Emily listens to the series closely enough to always ask that I check I've got my pricker close at hand before I head south. And Atticus is a furry legend. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Mm.